The Senate will return on Monday and remain in session through Thursday. The House will return Tuesday and stay in session through Friday. And before I say anything else, let me say we think Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin is now in the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center, where he has been since being admitted to the ICU a week ago. The Pentagon didn't bother to notify anyone, including senior White House staff, that Secretary Austin was in the hospital until Friday night when Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks began assuming some of his responsibilities last week, even she did not know it was because he had been hospitalized. For four days, while two U.S. allies are involved in significant shooting wars that involve U.S. military assistance overseen by the Secretary of Defense, no one in the White House knew that the Secretary of Defense was hospitalized because no one in the White House had been told. And since the news broke on Friday night, everyone in Washington has been asking why and how. Why did this happen and how could it have happened? We'll stay on top of this story as it develops. This week in the House, the House will return Tuesday with the first vote set for 6.30 p.m. That will be a simple quorum call. On Wednesday, the House will take up five bills under suspension of the rules. Then the House will consider S.J. Res. 38, a Congressional Review Act resolution of disapproval of the rules submitted by the Federal Highway Administration relating to waiver of Buy America requirements for electric vehicle chargers. On Thursday, the House will take up H.R. 788, the Stop Settlement Slush Funds Act of 2023. On Friday, the House will take up S.J. Res. 98, a Congressional Review Act resolution of disapproval against the rule submitted by the National Labor Relations Board relating to standard for determining joint employer status. And then they'll be done. This week in the Senate, the Senate will return Monday with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. At that time, the Senate will proceed to a roll call vote to invoke cloture on the nomination of John Kazin, to be U.S. District Judge for the Southern District of Texas. Then, based on the Majority Leader's cloture filings, I anticipate we'll see votes through the rest of the week on the nominations of Javier Rodriguez to be an Assistant Secretary of Labor, Joseph Goffman to be an Assistant Administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, Cato Cruz to be U.S. District Judge for the District of Colorado, and Carolyn Mahalchek to be U.S. District Judge for the Middle District of Pennsylvania. Now, let's take a moment to look at the big picture agenda-wise. As we enter the new year, Congress has a full plate and a bunch of deadlines on big things. On January 19, funding runs out for all the federal government agencies that are regularly funded by the appropriations bills for military construction and veterans affairs, transportation and housing, agriculture and energy and water. Two weeks later, on February 2, funding runs out for all the other federal agencies, including the Pentagon. Also on February 2, the authorization for the National Flood Insurance Program expires. On March 8, the authorization for the Federal Aviation Administration expires. On April 19, the authorization for Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which was extended temporarily by enactment of the 2023 National Defense Authorization Act, expires. And while there's no expiration date on it, congressional leaders in the Senate are working hard to find a compromise on President Biden's emergency supplemental funding request to send more than $100 billion in aid to Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, and the border.
That's a tight schedule, and it's going to be playing out against both a political and a legal backdrop. The Iowa caucuses are a week from today. The New Hampshire primary is two weeks from tomorrow. President Trump's first criminal trial is still scheduled to begin on March 4, though I wouldn't bet on that date holding, given the pretrial maneuvering that's going on, and Super Tuesday is March 5. Oh, and with the expulsion at the end of the year of Congressman George Santos and the resignation of Congressman Kevin McCarthy, the House is now a 220 to 213 body with two vacancies. On January 21, Republican Congressman Bill Johnson of Ohio will step down to become a university president. That will leave the House at 219 Republicans to 213 Democrats. So Speaker Johnson's margins are going to be very tight. Now let's talk about the border crisis. Fox News' Bill Malugin reported on the second day of the new year that his sources inside Customs and Border Protection had revealed to him that, quote, December finished with a staggering 302,000 migrant encounters, the highest single month ever recorded, and the first time hitting 300K. That includes nearly 250,000 Border Patrol apprehensions of illegal immigrants, also highest month ever for Border Patrol. There have now been over 785,000 migrant encounters at the southern border since October 1st, the highest first quarter ever recorded. That's a population size bigger than the city of Seattle, coming across the border in just three months, end quote. Not surprisingly, law enforcement authorities tasked with patrolling and protecting the border have had their priorities shifted from protecting the border to processing illegal immigrants. In Tucson, for instance, Chief Tucson Sector Patrol Agent John Modlin declared that, quote, most recently when I looked at it, it was about 38% of the Border Patrol staff in Tucson is doing processing and detention stuff. On the other side of the country, in the nation's capital, on the second day of January, the Washington Times reported, quote, the man arrested last week for carrying a machete at the U.S. Capitol is an illegal immigrant from Venezuela who was caught and released under the Biden administration's lenient border policies. He was arrested the day after Christmas by police after he was found with a machete, knife, and brick at the Capitol. Last Wednesday, Speaker Johnson led a massive congressional delegation to visit the border at Eagle Pass, Texas. A group of 63 of his fellow House Republicans, representing 26 states, joined him for two days of meetings at the border with relevant federal, state, and local officials and residents. Said Johnson at the press conference, the crisis at the southern border is a, quote, disaster of the president's own design, end quote, before adding that Biden has the authority to fix the problem by executive action. And he noted that the Biden administration isn't satisfied with failing to enforce the law on the border. The Biden administration insists that Texas state officials also fail to police the border and demonstrated its determination to make Texas fail by suing the state of Texas to block enforcement of a new state law that makes it a state crime to be in the state as an illegal immigrant and authorizes police to arrest people they suspect crossed the Rio Grande between legal ports of entry. Last Tuesday, the Biden administration filed another lawsuit at the Supreme Court asking the court to rule that the federal government has supremacy over state law and that, therefore, the federal government could cut the razor wire that the state of Texas has laid along 110 miles of the Rio Grande to prevent aliens from entering illegally.
Meanwhile, the House Homeland Security Committee will on Wednesday hold its first impeachment hearing regarding Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. The hearing is entitled Havoc in the Heartland, How Secretary Mayorkas's Failed Leadership Has Impacted the States, and will examine how Midwestern states in particular have been affected by the surge of illegal immigration. Now to the latest on the emergency supplemental. More than two months ago, President Biden asked Congress for $106 billion in emergency supplemental spending. For some reason, despite the fact that the two sides necessary for any agreement in Washington today are Joe Biden on one side of the table and House Republicans on the other, a couple of senators took it upon themselves to begin a negotiation. The Republican, James Lankford of Oklahoma, declared that Democrats would have to be willing to add provisions to secure the border to any such legislation before Senate Republicans would be willing to provide the nine votes necessary to end debate and pass such a bill. The Democrat, Chris Murphy of Connecticut, aided by the newly independent Kirsten Cinema of Arizona, grumbled and agreed to begin talking. That was about 10 weeks ago, and we still don't have an agreement. The Biden administration began sending a representative to sit at the table in the form of DHS Secretary Mayorkas before Christmas, but he apparently had a, hasn't added much to the conversation. Meanwhile, Speaker Johnson has for the most part stayed on the sidelines, repeating whenever he's asked that House Republicans have already addressed the border crisis by passing H.R. 2, the Secure the Border Act, and that anything coming out of the Senate must contain the provisions of H.R. 2 if it is to pass the House. On Friday, Senator Sinema revealed that she had spoken earlier that day with Speaker Johnson about the discussions. She wouldn't tell reporters anything about the content of her conversation other than to confirm that it happened. On Sunday, CBS News reported that the White House had only recently come to the conclusion that Republicans were serious about their demands for change to Biden's abuse of parole policy, and that would have to be included in any negotiated package, much to their chagrin. This could be the breakthrough that leads to a successful conclusion, but as always, the devil is in the details. Elsewhere, Murphy and Langford are reported by Politico to be close enough to an agreement that they say they hope to be in a position to brief their respective party conferences later this week. Langford is confident enough that he scheduled a meeting to brief the House Republican Study Committee on Wednesday. Now to government funding. What's going on there? Late yesterday afternoon, congressional leaders from both parties announced they had reached agreement over the top-line numbers for a full-year appropriations package. Defense spending in fiscal 2024 will total $886 billion. Non-defense discretionary spending will total $773 billion. The total is $1.659 trillion, not the $1.59 trillion that was originally reported, because the deal includes $69 billion in a so-called side deal. That's very close to the spending levels negotiated in the spring, when former Speaker McCarthy negotiated directly with President Biden over the debt ceiling increase deal called the Fiscal Responsibility Act. Johnson won a clawback of $6.1 billion in unspent COVID funding, and an agreement to move $20 billion in cuts to IRS funding over two years, to $20 billion in IRS funding cuts over one year, that is, this year. Not surprisingly, the House Freedom Caucus objected. The group's tweet reads as follows, quote, It's even worse than we thought. Don't believe the spin. 
Once you break through typical Washington math, the total programmatic spending level is $1.658 trillion, not $1.59 trillion. This is total failure, end quote. Consequently, the House Republican leadership will recognize it cannot pass a rule to govern floor consideration of a spending bill based on this agreement. That means the House GOP leadership will have to put the bill or bills on the floor under suspension of the rules. That means the bill or bills will need 290 votes to pass instead of 218. And that means they'll be relying on a lot of Democrat votes. And that means Democrats will have leverage over the final content of these bills. Stay tuned. Now for the latest on the Biden crime family saga. The House Oversight Committee will vote Wednesday, as will the House Judiciary Committee, on dueling resolutions to hold Hunter Biden in contempt of Congress for defying a subpoena to appear before the committee for a private deposition. After the committee votes, the measure will be cleared for a floor on the floor of the House. I'm sorry, the measure will be cleared for a vote on the floor of the House. Assuming the resolution carries a majority, Hunter Biden will be in exactly the same position as former Trump aides Steve Bannon and Peter Navarro, each of whom has been convicted by juries of their peers on two counts of contempt of Congress for defying congressional committee subpoenas, exactly the same thing Hunter Biden has done. Said U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia, Matthew Graves, a Biden appointee about Bannon's conviction, quote, the subpoena to Stephen Bannon was not an invitation that could be rejected or ignored. Mr. Bannon had an obligation to appear before the House Select Committee to give testimony and provide documents. His refusal to do so was deliberate, and now a jury has found that he must pay the consequences, end quote. Let that sink in for a moment. You could take that statement and replace Stephen Bannon with Hunter Biden, and you wouldn't have to change anything else. But I'll give pretty good odds that this particular Biden appointee will not be thinking the same way about a referral from the Republican-controlled House of Representatives holding Hunter Biden in contempt of Congress. I'll give pretty good odds that this particular Biden appointee is going to ignore a referral from the House to prosecute Hunter Biden for contempt of Congress the way he did Bannon and Navarro for the same crime. But that's just me. Now to the 14th Amendment and the attacks on democracy. While we were celebrating the holidays, the Colorado Supreme Court, each of its seven members appointed by a Democrat governor, ruled in a four to three decision that President Trump was disqualified from serving as president due to the clause in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution and consequently ordered his name struck from the Colorado Republican primary ballot. A few days later, the Secretary of State of Maine, a very partisan Democrat, decided on her own that Trump's name should be struck from the main ballot for the same reason. Both rulings included stays of the ruling so appeals could be filed. The Trump campaign promptly appealed both rulings. The Supreme Court agreed on Friday to take up Colorado's decision. The court will hear oral arguments on February 8. I am confident that the Supreme Court is going to strike down the Colorado ruling. The question is, how will it choose to do so? Remember, when the Chief Justice is in the majority, he gets to assign the writing of the decision to whichever justice he wants. This particular Chief Justice has a reputation for concern over the image of the court, to the point that he has formed majorities for the purpose of writing decisions that he believes will protect the image of the court. 
I believe it is quite likely that he will seek to do so in this case. There are any number of different ways this ruling could be struck down. For instance, former Attorney General Michael Mukasey wrote way back in September in the Wall Street Journal that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment doesn't even apply to the former president. Now consider the fact that Trump has not been convicted in any court, anywhere, on any count, period, let alone a count related to insurrection or incitement to insurrection. Now add the fact that not only has Trump not been convicted of a crime related to insurrection or incitement to insurrection, he hasn't even been charged with such a crime. Now add the fact that even though there's been a special counsel investigating Trump, who's already indicted Trump on four counts related to the January 6th riot, even he failed to indict Trump for insurrection or incitement to insurrection. Now add the fact that Trump was impeached while he was in office for his role in the January 6th riot. The House of Representatives voted to impeach him and adopted one article of impeachment for incitement of insurrection, but the Senate failed to convict him. The relevant clause of the Constitution reads as follows, quote, no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or support to the enemies thereof, end quote. That's a mouthful. Let's break it down. First, this prohibition only applies to four categories of people. People who had already taken oath as a, one, member of Congress, or two, officer of the United States, or as a, three, member of any state legislature, or as a, four, executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution and who have thereafter engaged in insurrection or rebellion. The President of the United States, according to several previous Supreme Court rulings, is not an officer of the United States. That phrase, it turns out, applies to appointed officials in the executive branch, not the two elected officials in the executive branch. Further, no one has yet established legally that what happened on January 6th was an insurrection or rebellion. So bet your bottom dollar that this Colorado ruling gets overturned, and I'd wager a lot of money that the Chief Justice is going to work as hard as he can to fashion a narrow ruling based on just enough reasons to allow him to get all nine justices on the same page, because he wants this ruling to come down as unanimous. Stay tuned. Now, finally, to The Jenny Beth Show. Episode 47 of The Jenny Beth Show dropped last Wednesday, featuring Jenny Beth's interview of David Bozell, who leads For America, a conservative organization that focuses on using social media to disseminate conservative messaging online. It's a great conversation, and I highly recommend it. And that's our Washington Report for this week.